Hi, I'm Sadie from The Noshery. And I'm Rebecca from Foodie with Family. And welcome to another episode of My Plate is Always Full, where we're always hungry to talk about food. And today's episode, we're bringing it to you with love. Nothing but love. She's saying that because I'm about to tell you what you're doing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, yes, we are saying this with much, much love, even though sometimes it may not sound like it by the tone of my voice. (laughs) I guess it's maybe more accurate to say that you're probably doing it wrong. Not definitely. (laughs) Maybe we should explain what it is we mean and what we're talking about. What we're driving at is that there are a lot of things you might be doing in the kitchen that you could be doing a better way, and we are here to help you figure it out. Oh, I see. You are, um, you're being diplomatic, Yes. Right? Yes. So you're nice. I'm mean. Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> Typically how it goes. It I mean, I'm is. not exactly known for my soft deliveries. <laughs> you're also not known for your poker face. This is true. (laughs) But what it does boil down to is this. We're here to make your kitchen life more effective today. Yes. And help me help you is the episode for today. Let's get this going. Shall we do it the right way? Yes, let's do it the right way. Let's break it down here. There are maybe not completely right and wrong ways to do things in the kitchen, even though I will say there are very right ways and very wrong ways to do some things. But, yes. you know, that's just me. I, you know, my, my character flaw, so to speak. I don't know if it's a flaw so much as it's just a character trait. Okay, I'll, I'll take that one. <laughs> but there's almost always better ways to do things. It's true. So. Not everyone has worked in a professional kitchen. So let me tell you a little something about it. There, especially when you're working with a particular chef, Mm -hmm. they will have very particular ways of how things should be. So even though we're going to give you like some hard and fast rules, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the only way. Let's put it that way. It's just the way that in our profession, our idea, how we have worked in the kitchen, we have find it to be the best yes. or the most efficient. The quality of your life depends on becoming the most efficient at doing things in the kitchen. It's Breaking true. down vegetables, aromatics, um, how to coax and develop the most flavor from things, mm-hmm. how to properly cook things, and how to clean things which um, is just an added level of stress when you just cannot (laughs) figure out how to get that pan, like that crud off that pan. You know what I mean? And then you just like set it aside and then you don't want to deal with it. And then it even gets weirder. We're going to help you with that too. We we are. We are because, (laughs) you know, you learn pretty early in restaurant kitchen life to set yourself up for success by doing things a certain way, by establishing a system. And thankfully, you generally have you know, a bunch of other people milling around in the kitchen who've done this before for a long time. So you can observe what they do that works and what they do that doesn't work. And you kind of 
build that into your own personal system. And thankfully, a lot of that translates really well to the home kitchen. Plus, um, not to brag or anything, but I'm oh, uh huh. I'm I'm middle aged. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I know. That You're just, shocked. It's wisdom. Wisdom. I know. Oh, wisdom. I'm I'm middle aged, and I've picked up a few tricks along the way at home. I mean, my bona fides are basically that I have a husband and five sons that eat several meals a day like hobbits, but... Um, I love no, how been... you're always comparing them to hobbits. Well, <laughs> hobbits eat several meals a day. You know, they have breakfast, second breakfast, lunch, tea. You know, they have, I think, oh, shoot. Now my, you know, my nerd is going to be questioned here because I can't remember exactly how many meals a day they eat, but I know it's a lot and I know my kids eat a lot. And that, so I guess, you know, I'm still talking about a production kitchen kind of level of cooking, right? But Uh, yes, certainly. I mean, I've seen the, I've seen and heard about the copious amounts of food that you have to put out in one, you know, any given occasion. So what are we going to tell the good people? They're doing wrong first. (laughs) (laughs) Way to bring that back around. I thought you might want to cover um, the, what is to me the be all and end all of kitchen life. And that's mise en place. It's actually one of my favorite. I don't know what it is about doing mise en place. I mean, sometimes it's tedious, but sometimes I find it very therapeutic. Yeah, it's know? kind of almost contemplative, right? I know. Just- also, it might be like a character trait of mine because you know how I can be a little organized Yes, in, in some aspects of life, not everyone. Like if you were to ask my husband, like, uh, yeah, maybe in this, but not when it comes to your car. You know what I mean? He's always <laughs> giving me side eye about that. But right. I do like things to be like you can find it, you can easily access it, everything to be in its place. And that is exactly what mise en place means. It is a culinary term, French, and it essentially means everything is in its place. Everything is prepared, everything is ready to go. So what you want to do is that way, the whole idea of like when you're cooking in a kitchen, it can get very chaotic and messy if you're reading through a recipe and as you're reading through the recipe, you realize, oh, I need to have this cut this way, or I need to have this butter softened, or I need these eggs to be room temperature, all of those things that if you don't look at them beforehand can create very chaotic, stressful cooking experience. Um, Yeah. If you, don't, you know, if you haven't set yourself up first. So the best thing that you can do is to mise en place. And the great thing is, is that if you do it well, you can do it even a day or two before. And then the day of cooking, you can cook much more efficiently and a lot more quantities because you're basically just like dumping and Yeah, you're assembling cooking. at that point. Yeah, at that point. So, and that's typically how a restaurant kitchen will run. Mondays for me, one of the restaurants I worked at, we would come in early on Monday mornings and we would do tons and tons of prep for the entire week. And then that way it would set us up for the whole week. And then we would have to just fill in little holes here and there throughout the week. Instead of just like all of a sudden, we have no carrots ready to make the carrot soup that we have on the daily menu. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And the last thing you want to be doing is having to peel, break down, steam, prep, puree a bunch of carrots (laughs) for a carrot soup. You know what I mean? If you already kind of have it 
partially set up and ready to go. And that way it's like, oh, we ran out. Well, we can just bang out another batch pretty quickly. Right. So translating that to the home kitchen, how does a home cook use mise en place? Which I have to say, as an aside, my son Aiden said mise en place is French for having your life together. <laughs> I think that's really a pretty good um, pretty good way to characterize the importance of mise en place. You Very you, much, yeah. You get your life together before you start cooking. <laughs> I mean, the best way and the easiest concept that I think any home cook would understand is, for example, meal prep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody talks about meal prep. You hear a lot about meal prep. And there are different ways to do meal prep. For example, I do not know what I want to eat on Thursday evening. So I do not meal prep full meals throughout the week. Right. What I do instead is that I may prepare a few proteins that can be easily adjusted with the addition of some seasoning and sauces. I may bulk prep uh a starch, so either pasta or rice or, you know, roasted potatoes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I will also prep some fresh vegetables. I won't cook them unless it's going to be, you know, even like the more cruciferous ones, you know, like a broccoli or a Brussels sprout or something. If I do prep them ahead of time, I don't full out cook them. Instead, I will blanch them a little bit and that way they're partially cooked. So it cuts that cooking time in half when you are ready to make dinner. Right. Um, and that's how I choose to meal prep or mise en place for my week. That way, regardless of what I feel like eating with the addition of a specific seasoning or sauce, I can have Italian one evening and Indian the next. You know what I mean? Yep. Because it's more dependent on the seasoning and the sauces as opposed to, which is an easy addition as opposed to like having to roast a bunch of chicken or, you know, break down a bunch of vegetables or something like that. You can either do one or two things, which no judgment in either one. You can purchase uh, jarred and pre-made sauces, or you can make the sauces yourself. And then that way, if you, for example, one evening are in the mood for Indian, then you can take some chicken, some of those peppers, maybe some of the roasted potatoes. You can add like a jarred tiki masala or butter chicken sauce and then heat it up and serve it over rice and you're ready to go. And then the same thing, the same idea can apply for Italian, adding either a cream Alfredo sauce or adding a a jarred pasta sauce. Really, the possibilities are endless. If you don't want sauce, add some seasonings, reheat it, maybe crisp it up in a pan with a little bit of oil or butter or something like that to give it some texture. You know? I'm hungry. I'm and then like, serve it over rice. You can and you can take all of these things and you can stuff them in a tortilla and make a burrito. You know what I mean? Like really the possibilities are endless as long as you just keep the initial ingredients simple. The addition of the seasoning and sauces is a lot more flexible. Right. That is taking a restaurant style mise en place and bringing it into your kitchen to make your life easier. So th- yeah. I would call that like big picture mise en place. If we're talking small picture micromanaging mise en place, which is kind of my favorite version of mise en place, I would suggest that what you really need to remember is to read the recipe through at least twice completely before you start it so that you know you need to have these onions broken down, you need to have carrots, you need to have celery, you need to have, like Mercedes said, the softened butter, you need to have, oh my gosh, what? 
you don't have oregano in the house? Okay, before you started cooking, you can go to the store and get that. So it's it's basically just a way to make your life easier and eliminate stressful moments because you know what's coming, you know what you need to have, you're not going to be surprised by an ingredient two-thirds of the way through cooking when you could ruin your recipe without proceeding. Yes. So absolutely. it's like an insurance policy. I'm always policy. telling people that. I'm like, read the recipe. Read No, like read the recipe. The whole thing. All the way through, then yes. read it again. And then as you're preparing your stuff, follow the recipe and prepare it as you're reading it pretty much for the third time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you should read it through twice before you start cooking and make sure you know what comes when. So that's that's the biggest concept I I would say people need to take out of mise en place. Now, let's talk about onions. It's Since so we've funny mentioned onions me. twice. Yes. <laughs> what is? What's so Well, funny? just the whole like onion thing. It's funny to me how many times I have either seen people get frustrated yeah. with breaking down an onion because if you don't do it a certain way, it becomes very complicated or frustrating. Let's just put it that way because well, yeah. it will fall apart on you. In the words of Shrek, an onion has layers, right? So yes. you've got to- And then you end up chasing it around if you do it wrong. <laughs> right. So let, let's actually give some- Let's give some onion breakdown technique, just in case somebody out there is listening and, and saying, yes, I hate cutting onions. They're, they're a total pain in my rear. How do we do this, Mercedes? Well, I always tell people that if you're going to be doing any kind of you know small dice, medium dice, anything like that, where you're wanting to get some form of square, you know, mm-hmm. um, what you want to do is you want to cut it from... I guess lengthwise would be the correct term to use. So think of it as you're cutting the root in half. Yeah, so from pole to pole. Yes, exactly. And then once you cut it in lengthwise from pole to pole, you'll probably trim off the top, not the root, but the top kind of, you know, fluted part. Right. Just to clean it up. And you want to keep the root intact. You don't want to cut that off because that, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to interject and say, it is at that point that I usually peel it. So I don't mess with peeling it until I've cut it in half because it's a whole lot easier to get your fingernails under the edge of that peel than to wrestle with some giant whole onion and its peel. Yeah. it's In fact, if anything, you might want to, depending on like the size of your onion and everything like that, you can kind of take your knife over on to that like top uh, fluted part is what Mm -hmm. I addressed it. And lift it up and then kind of get your knife underneath there and be able to pull the entire skin, most, if not most of the skin, off in one in one simple pull. Yes. You know? Um, sometimes onions will have a really thin skin that will have like another membrane kind of attaching to it and it makes it a little bit more difficult. But if your onion is relatively relatively dried out, you can usually kind of pull it off in one felt swoop like that. Right. And that's where you start off. So then depending on the size of your of your dice, you want to do some horizontal cuts. And depending on how big you want your dice will determine how many cuts you will make and how far apart they will be. The smaller yes. you want it, the tighter together you want, the more cuts you'll make. Then you'll cut them vertically and then you'll sl- actually slice it from top to root. And you'll right. everything will be kind of held together by that root. If you remove the root, your onion's going to start falling apart all over the place and you're going to be chasing it all over the place and you're going to be like, why can't I make a decent cut? 
Well, yeah. Because you're chasing your onion all over the cutting board. Yeah. So by the end of it, you'll be left with half of that root. And then you repeat the same process with the other half. Now, if you were to do a julienne cut, so think julienne as being like thin sticks yes. or slivers, you would just go ahead and remove the top, remove the root, hold on to it, and do thin slices across. To recap, if you wanted to dice an onion, you're going to cut it in half from pole to pole, lay it down flat side on the cutting board, make horizontal cuts with your knife parallel to the cutting board, coming up to the root but not through it. Then you're going to turn your knife so that your knife is perpendicular to the cutting board and make vertical cuts across the onion, again, near the root but not all the way through it. And then you're going to turn the onion and you're going to hold your knife parallel to the end of the onion that you've cleaned up. So the fluted end, as Miss Sadie has been referring to it, and you'll cut across that and that will be a beautiful dice of onion, whatever size you desire. You're so much more precise than I am. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, micromanaging in the kitchen. Summary. Micromanaging in the kitchen is my specialty. <laughs> I have an abundance of words sometimes and not so much efficiency. <laughs> no, I got to say too, you can do this on a smaller scale if you want to dice your garlic or mince your garlic versus putting it through a press. It's just a much smaller process. And yes. It requires yeah. a little bit more, you know, fine knife work, but it can be done. I actually like doing like little tiny dices on garlic. So do I. I like the okay, I like I to find like the little, if I'm weird. No, I like to find the tiny little cubes of garlic in my food. It's like a treasure hunt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So that's speaking maybe too much. Of, now we've I think we've gotten the onion down. Oh yeah. What about the elusive bell pepper? Okay. Bell pepper. I have seen yeah. Some fascinating ways to break down a bell pepper. There really are. And now now who's being diplomatic? Because I'm going to go ahead and say <laughs> I have seen some seriously messed up ways of breaking down bell peppers. And if you're if that thing is rolling around your cutting board, I, I'm just going to tell you you're doing it wrong. So let me make this as easy as possible. You don't have to lob the top off. You don't have to lob the bottom off. You hold the bell pepper by its stem with the base of the bell pepper on your cutting board and take your knife and cut down the side away from the seed pod. Turn the bell pepper or rotate it about 90 degrees and cut again. And another slab of pepper will fall away from the seed pod. Continue doing this until you're left with a stem and a seed pod. Ta-da! That so is much all there is to in it. in your explanation. <laughs> <laughs> It is. You got to remember, I, I did kind of write some of this for my vegetable side dish cookbook. Well, so, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I remember when I was doing my cookbook, uh -huh. I was just like, I just struggle with, like, I would never be a technical writer. Is that the correct term? It is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where you're just very good and precise with your words and your explanation. Well, I had to, I mean, I, I had to sit down and really think about how to describe it because I do it every day. So, well, that's I, the thing. It's so much harder. It's funny because people will think, well, because you do it, it must be easy for you to explain it. And it actually requires a little bit of an exercise to understand 
or be patient, at least for me, I'm speaking for myself to recognize <laughs> that, you know, I just had to remind myself that just because I know something doesn't mean that other people also know it, you know, Correct. and that was yeah. one of the f- big things that was a great exercise for me, not only as I was working in kitchens, but as I became more proficient as a food blogger and writing the recipes to explain to the home cook. When I started food writing, my grandma was also a food writer for many years for a newspaper. And her piece of advice to me was, write it like you're writing it for someone who has never cooked before. Exactly. And that's really such a great exercise, mentally, at least for me, to clarify my own knowledge, too, is to explain it to somebody who hasn't done it before. So, and speaking of which... Speaking of knowledge you may not possess... Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about carrots and some potatoes? Okay. And the fact that, well, I'm not going to spoil it. You go ahead. Okay. Okay. I'll just <laughs> I'll just say it right now. You don't actually have to peel them. Thank you. <laughs> okay. It, this is something. This you are making work for yourself. I I love you, so I'm telling you this. Put away the carrot peeler. That's for cutting thin ribbons of vegetables for dishes in my kitchen. A carrot just needs to be scrubbed. You can do this with a piece of steel wool. You can do this with a nonstick scrubby. You can do this with a brush. You can do this with a kind of gnarly wash rag. It really doesn't matter. All you have to do is scrub it. Now, if you have spots that are a little bit funky, you cut those away with a knife. Or if you really insist, you can get the vegetable peeler out and take, you know, the funky spots off. But I promise you, peeling carrots is totally unnecessary. And the same holds true for thin-skinned potatoes. White potatoes, um, Yukon gold potatoes, red potatoes, any potato that has that super thin skin, you're going to cut away more potato when you try to peel that than you need to. And there's so much nutrition in that skin anyways. And it adds like a nice texture and flavor. It does. Unless... Well, and honestly, most of the thin-skinned potatoes, you wouldn't be using them to make mashed potatoes, for example. Right. So, and honestly, sometimes I like some skin in my mashed potatoes. I know some people think that's like a bad thing, but... No, I like it because I think it adds a little bit of extra pleasant flavor, too. Yeah. So, obviously, you want to remove any eyes from the potatoes or any green spots, but... I'm going to go ahead and say in 80 to 90% of the dishes you're making with those thin-skinned potatoes, you really don't have to peel them. Now that we've uh, talked about carrots and potatoes, I yes. want to mention some atrocities that I see when it comes to slicing a tomato. <laughs> <laughs> do tell, do tell. And the what I see the most is the smashing and annihilation of the poor <laughs> tomato. <laughs> what did that tomato do to you, people? I know. So a lot of people, first of all, one of the things that I see that is most offensive to me is attempting to slice a tomato with a dull knife. Oh, ouch. Okay. My soul. That hurts my Which, soul. Yeah. We're going to get into like the whole knife care situation in a little bit. But so let me just say, stop doing that. Don't yes. do that because tomatoes are very delicate. They're soft. They're, you know, they're tender. They need to be and handled with love. Exactly. I mean, and, there's, um, they are the love apple. <laughs> and what happens when you try to slice a tomato with a dull knife? You smash it. Yeah. You're not slicing it. You're just annihilating it. So, 
Let's not do that anymore. And instead, make your life easier and reach for a serrated knife. Yes. And it doesn't even have to be a fancy serrated knife. I've used a steak knife. Absolutely. Anything that has some teeth, because the other thing is, is that the tomato, even though the flesh itself is soft and tender, the skin is pretty durable. Yeah. Even though it's thin and it's very slick. So what happens is, is that if you try and use a regular knife, you <laughs> it requires you to put some pressure into it in order to initially break into the skin, almost regardless of how sharp your knife is. Yeah. I mean, if you got a really, really sharp knife, yeah, you can probably get through there, but it's you're still requiring to push into it a little bit. With a serrated knife, it is thinking thinking about it as like a bunch of little blades that are like digging into it and cutting it, you know? Yeah. So and what you happens really is, don't have to use you don't have to use muscle power at that exactly. point. Exactly. You don't have to use any pressure or really any force. And you can get a very well sliced tomato, you can get a thinly sliced tomato, which is even more difficult to do after you do that first cut. Yeah. Because yeah. after you do that first cut, it you know, it no longer has the skin to protect it from getting squished. Like it, it'll get even softer. It'll get even, even squishier and you will further annihilate the poor tomato. And and I would just like to say all of you 80s kids out there, remember the Ginsu knives commercials, right? <laughs> we all know the yes. serrated blade works on the tomato. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, if you ever get one of those like MLM type, you know, knife kits. Uh-huh. There's always that tomato slicer in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is great, but it can slice more than just tomatoes. And in let's say you have a bread knife, you have a serrated bread knife, it can also slice a tomato. That is you have my, a serrated that's my go-to. steak knife, it can also slice a tomato. So you don't have to go out and get some fancy tomato slicer. Just use a serrated knife. We're there for you, folks. That's This is us showing you how we care. And I would like to take this opportunity to segue into one of my favorite topics, which I'm realizing now makes me sound terrifically boring. Um, my favorite topic is knife care and cutting boards, which we did discuss in our knife episode. But I'm going to recap it here because we're talking about what you could do better in the kitchen. And that is that if you have a, God forbid, glass cutting board, you never Stop it. Stop ever, it now. <laughs> ever, ever put a knife to it again. You can, if, if it's beautiful, if it speaks to you, if you love it, you can use it to, I don't know, put food on that's already been cut on a proper cutting board. But do not, under any circumstances, Use a glass cutting board to cut things on because that is dreadful for your knives. I'm going to say it. Okay. Glass cutting boards are useless unless you have them for a decorative reason. Yes. They have no place in the kitchen. None. Okay. I guess it's, you could assemble a cheese board on it maybe. Well, I mean, but again, that is decorative, is it right. not? Right, right. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. So as a utility, as a tool, they are useless in the kitchen. I They're, agree. Yeah, there and then not only that, but even if you were to cut something on it with your knife, which shame on you. <laughs> it also juices when if something has juice, it will literally just just go 
all over the place. It's not like yeah. a cutting board or a plastic one. Like granted, yeah, stuff will run off of them. But with a glass one, it is just like waterfall just going for your counter. You're, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's no useless. stopping that. There's no stopping that. In and- fact, I say break it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, she's taking it further than I am. Because I've seen <laughs> ones that are, you know, pretty cute and you could you could assemble food on it and serve it on there. But I just, every time I see somebody cutting against one, I just want to put the knife down and hug them and say, there's a better way. Cut it out. Oh, you're, you're so not. much nicer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Mercedes going to slap them. I'm going to hug them. Okay. I mean, it, it, but there's more to it than just that. In addition to not using a glass cutting board, please don't cut directly on a countertop either, which I have well, also Well, I mean, your seen. poor counter. But yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, your poor counter and your poor knife. There are a couple of great surfaces for cutting on wood, plastic. Um, there's a manufactured wood surface where it's kind of a wood pulp that's been pressed together. That's also really nice. Those those are good things. Good. Also, things. just real quick before you move on to yes. knife care itself, those thin plastic mats are not meant to be used as cutting boards on your countertop. She speaks the truth. (laughs) Don't do that either. They're just meant to be a barrier on your wood cutting board, for example, so you can easily transition from cutting down a protein to cutting down a vegetable and not having to clean your cutting board. That's their only purpose. They're not to be used as actual cutting mats or whatever. (sighs) Right. It's, it's, It's sort of like, well, think of it like, a shelf liner. You know, it's yeah, it's there that's a good analogy. as a barrier between your cutting board and the work you're doing. So it's like Mercedes said, so it's easier to switch between what you're cutting. Um, and that's it. That's it. So knife care, wash it as soon as you use it. And when I say wash it, I mean by hand. Knives, unless we're talking about a butter knife at the table, do not belong in the dishwasher. Preach. Because the dishwasher detergent that you use is a little bit more um, robust, let's say, than the stuff that you use in a bottle at the sink. And it can pit your knife. It can corrode your knife. And any of these things that I'm talking about are no bueno for the life of your knife and the effectiveness of your knife. So wash it by hand. Dry it by hand put it away when you're done using it. Am I and right? It takes like seconds. Absolutely. It doesn't a knife isn't like scouring a pot. You know what I mean? Right. With some hot water and a little bit of soap, it will take you seconds to clean a knife. A well cared for knife will last you years and years. So just be nice to it. And that's be essentially nice all nice. you need like and then maybe honing it. Yes. Sharpening it maybe once every two years or something like that. And if you don't you take have to be good care of your knife. Yeah, you don't have to be some crazy, you know, chef parody with a big long steel swiping your knife up and down at warp speed. You can get a little knife sharpener that sits on your counter that has the honing material that you kind of pull your knife blade through. So if that's more your speed, go for it. You don't have to be you know, wild and crazy. Just take care of your knife. Yes. Um, I would also like to take this opportunity, since we are discussing my favorite micromanaging, to talk about my other favorite subject in the kitchen, and that is how to measure flour. 
oh, I'm totally leaving that to you. Like, that's all you. <laughs> okay. Because I am not – I although I am attempting mm-hmm. to become more proficient at mm-hmm. specifically bread baking, cakes and stuff like that are definitely not my thing. Okay. So, well, but, I'm just yeah, going to say that one to you. no matter what you're baking – and notice I say baking, not making – no matter what you're baking, if you're using flour, I'm here to tell you that the best way to measure it is with a scale, as in by weight, not by yes. volume. And I know that like some people will groan when they hear yeah. that because it is kind of out of their regular routine. Right. However, I will say that I myself felt that way. Like, I'd be like, seriously, I got to yeah. like, go buy a scale or I got to like, do I, math I mean, that, or that whatever. That just sounds, it sounds so obsessive compulsive, right? To it measure does. it by a scale. But I'm here to tell you, once you have gotten past that initial hurdle of translating these volumes to weights, it is so much easier to measure most your flour by now weight. Yeah. Have the weight. So yeah. you don't necessarily even have to do the math anymore. You it's know? so much easier and it's so much quicker. And it's, it, well, to be honest, yes, it's more precise. And why does that matter? Because if you're taking the trouble to bake something, you're putting in time, you're putting in effort. And if something as simple as measuring your flour by weight versus by volume can make the difference between a consistent end product and something that is resembling a a marginally edible hockey puck <laughs> i say you get the scale out and learn to measure by weight and it's well and really, if that doesn't convince tough. you like <laughs> think about when you're baking one of the things i hated about baking was that i would end up with all of these like little things that were dirty yeah you know what i mean i'd end up with all these cups and then i'd have to like oh i had to measure again so now i had to clean the cup and then i had to wipe it out because i was going from flour to like honey or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, You don't have to worry about that if you weigh it because everything goes in the same bowl and you just add it. Yep. And you weigh it. End of discussion. It out, and then you wear it again. And that's it. It's so much easier, a lot less cleanup and much more precise and a much more higher quality product in the end. Yes. Yep. And just, I would also like to say briefly, if you are making bread and you're kneading dough, you don't have to beat the tar out of it. You just are looking to combine things. So do you remember that time? <laughs> do you remember that time we were together and I was making my Mallorca dough with you? Uh-huh. Or like I think we were in the same I don't remember where we were. We were probably at our friend Mary's and I was making the rolls and I was rolling it out into the coil to shape the bun and the quill kept like bouncing back. Like it uh-huh. wouldn't like stay long. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And it was because I had just kept working it so much, all of the gluten was like spazzing out and, and pulling back. Yeah, yeah. It, and I was, you- <laughs> I'm like, I will win this battle. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you'll win this battle if you leave it alone and let it chill a little bit. Just walk away. Calm Let's down. just say patience was not my virtue, which is why I'm not a great baker. <laughs> yeah. So when you're kneading dough, I, I know we've all got this picture in our head of some grandma, you know, beating the heck out of a thing of bread dough on the counter and slapping it around. It's just, it's more of a gentle, rhythmic motion, looking to combine it, looking to get the dough to a smooth, elastic state. 
So that's and, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. And if you have a stand mixer, yes, you can totally use the dough hook to do oh, some yeah. of the kneading on like softer breads. You know, you don't want to do on anything on a on a dough that's super, super heavy and dense because it's going to sound like you're rolling a chicken around in there or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> have you done this? I want to know maybe. where you got that comparison. <laughs> maybe. 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 So, but if you're looking to make like a really nice, soft, stretchy dough, the dough hook in the stand mixer is a great option. She speaks Especially if you're truth again. lazy like I am. Oh, it's <laughs> got nothing to do with laziness. It's efficiency. And that's what we're talking about today. Exactly. Exactly. What? Yep. I'm not lazy. I'm efficient. That's exactly. right. <laughs> I think we so, should put that on t-shirts. I'm not lazy. I'm efficient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. That's so funny. So speaking so, of efficiency. Yes. Um, I know we all have a nonstick pan yes. in our kitchen. And nonstick pans are great when you are cooking at a, especially a low consistent heat. Yes. And then you ever notice that when you crank that heat up, everything kind of starts to smoke and everything gets like a weird, it, it almost, I mean, yes, it burns, but it like scalds your meat or your food even more. And it's not in a pretty caramelized way. You know yes. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is because you should not be cooking with nonstick pans over high heat. Because that, is correct. that coating reacts to a super high heat. It releases toxins. It also can damage the coating too, which will lead to, you know, that flaking isn't necessarily just because you're using the wrong cooking utensil in it. Another contributing factor is probably that you're cooking over extremely high heat. Yes. And and as if, you know, releasing the toxic fumes wasn't enough, <laughs> the, the double down on damaging the pan should do it for you. But for sure. In addition, you should not be using metal utensils on a nonstick pan. I'm just here to tell you that in case you didn't well, I know mean, this already. Sometimes you think that's like a dir, but you know, yeah, not always. Just in case. So yeah, definitely wood or plastic. Don't use. And look, I'm not. Look, I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna do a confession here. I'm gonna fully confess that Uh-oh. sometimes they're all dirty, and all I need to do is just flip something real quick. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I'll grab the metal spatula. Okay, I've done it. We've all done it. It happens. Just don't make it a habit so you don't ruin your pan. Right. And on the subject of pans, because I feel very strongly about this, I'd like to discuss how to properly clean a cast iron pan. I want to hear how you clean it. And I want to know if I am doing it correctly. I believe I am. But I just want to hear it. In the spirit of today's show, I'll tell you (laughs) what is wrong first. And that is using (laughs) soap on a cast iron pan. Yes. Hello. Just keep the soap away from a cast iron pan. That is rule number one. Rule number two. Break down that beautiful curing film or barrier that is created on a cast iron pan that makes it nonstick. Yes, I I protects the iron itself. I will fight somebody on this one. This is this is important to me. Keep the soap away from the cast iron pan. In fact, when my sister was dating her now husband and gave us the go ahead to contact him and ask him questions, you know, to introduce ourselves, the first question I asked him was, what do you do to your cast iron pans? Because that's, <laughs> I'm not kidding. That is how judgmental I am about how to care for a cast iron pan. So, 
since I told you what not to do, allow me to clue you in on the proper way to clean cast iron. It is Mm -hmm. easiest to clean when it's still a little bit warm. Yes. Now, I have a little piece of what looks like chain mail that I use to clean my cast iron if it's got stuff really caked on there. But for the most part, what I do is add a little splash of a neutral oil and a handful of table salt. And I use that to scrub the surface of the cast iron pan. And then I rinse it or wipe it out and wipe it with another layer of neutral oil and just kind of rub that in and take any excess off and it's good to go. That's exa- that's pretty much exactly what I do, except I don't have the chain mail like rag or whatever. Oh, ev- every girl needs chain mail. <laughs> so what I do is that if it's hot, I will usually add a little bit of water because that will essentially deglaze the pan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll take a something to like a spatula or whatever to scrape the little bits up. Then I dump it. I wipe it. I add some salt. And because I don't have the chain mail rag, which isn't a rag, um, I'll just take some paper towel and give it Mm -hmm. like a good scrub with the kosher salt. That's another thing I want to point out that I use like the large, Mm -hmm. uh, the large crystalled kosher salt, not just table salt. And then I'll wipe it out. And if there is anything that's being particularly stubborn, I'll just take a scraper, one of those little plastic hand scrapers, Mm -hmm. and give it a good, you know, scrape, get it all up, oil it, wipe it off, and then put it away. And I would like to point out, if you don't have a plastic hand scraper, a... You can use an old credit card or hotel key card that you have from travel. Those work really well as scrapers, too. Oh, yes. Good idea to repurpose. So Yeah. Pro tips with Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. And since we're talking about pans, let's talk about one thing that I see often and that actually causes a lot of frustration for a lot of home cooks. Mm -hmm. Um, When they'll get frustrated because they'll be like, man, why won't my chicken get crispy? Or why right. don't I get that beautiful coloring on my Brussels sprouts or something like that that you're cooking in a pan? Anything that you're trying to get some kind of caramelization or color going on and or it's texture. not happening or a texture, crispiness, anything like that, it's not happening probably 99% of the time because you are overcrowding the pan. Now, there could be another culprit. It could be that your temperature is too low or your pan wasn't hot enough to begin with. But most of the time, if you have a lot going on, it's probably because you're overcrowding the pan. So what happens is is that when you overcrowd it, you don't let the air circulate. And what happens when you have something hot going that is releasing moisture, but it has no room to evaporate and, you know, for the air to circulate? It steams. That's what happens. So what is happening here is that because you have the pan all crowded up, nothing is circulating, nothing is evaporating, and all you're doing is steaming. And I have to say, since since you made a confession earlier, I have to make a confession now, which is that <laughs> sometimes, sometimes even I give in to the temptation to overcrowd a pan because I want to get something done faster. But the truth is, every time I do that, I want to smack my own forehead because you don't actually get it done faster because you've dropped the temperature of the pan by adding all of that cold food in. So it takes longer to come up to temperature and it takes longer in the end to cook whatever it was you should have split into a couple of batches. 
Exactly. That was what I was about to say next. Sorry. Even though I stepped on you. (laughs) That's fine. Even though it's very tempting to just like throw everything in there because you want to get it done. It's it's really not going to work out. It's, no. You're just going to end up very frustrated, standing there for longer, yelling at whatever is in the pan, like, why don't you cook already? That's because <laughs> there's too much in there. You need to allow air to circulate. If you're going to have to cook for a large quantity of people, you and might want to reconsider. Yeah. <laughs> you might want to reconsider your cooking method. Maybe Doing it in a pan on the stovetop isn't the best idea. A lot right. of times when you're caramelized or when you're cooking something off on a stovetop, many of those things can be roasted in the oven. Not all of them, but many of them. And you'll get a very similar um, result. Yes. And you'll get a very similar result. And it will allow for air to circulate and you'll get that beautiful color and it'll be delicious and it'll be a lot less frustrating and you don't have to stand over it and watch it. Like you're watching water boil and nothing is <laughs> I've, happening. I've tried that. And while eventually it does boil, it's a really long wait, you know? Yes. Um, I just want to add one final piece of information to our pan discussion before we move on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm going to go ahead and say that everybody who cooks has done this at one point or another. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but you've either boiled a pan dry or baked it and roasted something to the point where you've got some disgusting burnt sludge on a pan that will not come off no matter how hard you scrub it. Am I, I right? I mean, the classic example of that is a lasagna pan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does not matter what kind of scrubbing implement you have, you're not going to be able to get off of that pan what you baked onto it or boiled onto it. And a lot of times this happens with candy making too. You know, things, it doesn't have to be something that complicated. It's just day-to-day work, right? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I or it's have, just build up. Sometimes yeah. you've, you know, I know, I don't know, but like I have some sheet pans that maybe I just like roasted something on them pretty simply and it wasn't really that big of a buildup. So I just rinsed it, washed it and put it away. Yeah. And then by, there was still like a residue of something on there. That oh, maybe yeah. wasn't visible. So then you use it again and you do it again. And then it just starts to get really gunky. And you're like, what the heck? That, you know, that happens yeah. too. <laughs> so I have what to me, when I learned it, was a miracle tip to share with folks. And I have been very gratified over the years to be able to share this with people and have them say, oh my gosh, I never thought that pan would come clean. But it doesn't require anything fancy. It requires a black trash bag and a bottle okay. of ammonia. And, oh, which, oh this, okay. This sounds a little bit like a it recipe sounds for a like bomb. I'm a little concerned. Yeah, I was about to say. I'm um, like, it sounds, sounds like you're about to This is not dangerous. I do. promise it's not dangerous. I promise. But you do have to, you have to exercise a little bit of caution in knowing that you can't get ammonia anywhere near bleach. But if ammonia was that unsafe, they wouldn't sell it at Dollar General, people. It is widely <laughs> available. What you're going to do with your pan is you're going to put enough ammonia into the pan that it's going to cover whatever it is that's baked on there. And you're going to slide the pan into this black plastic trash bag. And the reason you're going to use black plastic trash bag is because the black is going to help absorb heat from the sun. 
And yes, this is, I guess this is sounding a little more complicated now. But the process is this. You add the ammonia, you wrap your pan in the black plastic trash bag and seal it, and then you put this out in the sun. Okay, so you're you're definitely not making a bomb, right? No, definitely not making a bomb. Um, but I, I would like to add a little piece of um, hard-earned advice that do, I do learned tell. when I tried this method for the very first time because I had a broiler pan that I had broiled goodness knows what onto and it was not coming off for love nor money. There was nothing I could do to get the stuff off of this broiler pan and I read the trick So I splashed the ammonia into my pan and I put it in a black plastic garbage bag and I put it out in the sunniest part of my yard, which was the driveway. But I failed to remember that I had done this and then I backed over my pan in the car. (laughs) So I do suggest... Oh my God. I do suggest that you put it somewhere that you won't drive over... And that you're likely to remember. I I will tell you that when I opened the bag and looked at my crumpled pan, that it was perfectly clean. (laughs) So there's there's that. Use it as a sheet pan, maybe, or was it like folded in? Oh no, it was all over. It was all over, but the crying for that pan. So this this method actually can work in the house too. I don't know if you've ever had something boil over on your stovetop. I have definitely had that happen, and it's been literally a hot mess. How do you do it in the house on your stovetop? I okay, mean, I so guess you, when, you spray it with ammonia and then cover yeah, it with plastic? Yeah. So what you do is you wait until the oven has cooled down completely, right? That should go without saying, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. You wait until it's completely cool. You take the grates off because I have a gas cooktop and you splash ammonia on the spot that you've baked on and cover it with plastic wrap and let it sit for a couple of hours. And then you remove the plastic wrap. And again, you pull out my handy dandy hotel key card or the little scraper. And it just just pulls right up. And then you're not scratching the surface of the stove. Because sometimes, you know how like the plastic wrap won't stick to certain things. But, you know, there is that one, I guess, the press and seal type wrap. You know what I mean? So that might be helpful too. Yeah, I I just use, I, I use garden variety plastic wrap from the grocery store over it. And speaking of plastic wrap, here's a quick free hint. <laughs> You're just did you know off. did you know there's a right side and a wrong side to foil? Um yes, I did know that. There's the shiny side and the dull side and one side is nonstick and the other side isn't. Right. The dull side is the nonstick side. So that Correct. that's a that's a free one for you all. Yeah. That wasn't so, even which is why we didn't even have that on our list for today, but <laughs> There you go. Yeah, that's oh, I literally wrap almost almost every sheet pan with foil first. Yeah. Or, you know, also it makes it easier cleanup for one, and also it provides a little bit of a non-stick surface on the sheet pan. Right. Oh. So, another one now that we're coming into the season where everybody's wanting to cook a little bit more, have their herb gardens and everything like that. Let's talk really quick about storing fresh herbs. Yes, please. And my biggest thing that I would suggest is that one of the, there's not just one way, there's actually two ways that are best for storing fresh herbs. Well, please tell us. Well, because if you're dealing with a, what I call like the woody type herbs. So Mm -hmm. things like rosemary, thyme, where the branch is a little bit more, it's more of a stick 
You know what I mean? Um, all you need to do is use a damp paper towel. And when I mean damp, I don't mean like sopping wet or anything like that. I mean like almost barely wet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, sprinkle a little water on it and squeeze it to make sure it's... Yeah. You don't want it like dripping. You don't want it to create any kind of pooling because you're going to put it into a plastic bag. You're going to wrap your herbs with it and put it into a plastic bag and then you can keep it in the refrigerator. You can also do this with your more durable um, long stem leafy herbs. So for example, cilantro and parsley, you can do this. However, another thing that you can do, like a bouquet of flowers, you can put them in water in a small mason jar and then just take a plastic bag and put them on top. Yes, like like a tent. You know what I mean? Yeah, like a tent. Exactly. And that, I find, is a better way to store the long, leafy ones. But anything that's like, you know, rosemary, thyme, sage, even um, the chives where you're, you know, trimming off the top and stuff like that, all you need to do is wrap them in a damp paper towel and put them into a plastic bag. And the nice thing, too, is that if you are using your herbs quickly – you can use the leafy herbs almost as a bouquet to keep on your countertop in a lightly sunned area. It doesn't have to be like a ton of sun. So you can put cilantro, parsley, basil, anything like that that's kind of, you know, flowery and fluffy. They do really well as if you were to treat them like a floral bouquet. Um, That's right. It makes a really nice presentation on your kitchen counter. And I think finally, on that note, I'd like to share how to store cut lettuce because we're we're in salad season, right? I mean, yes. this is salad season. It is so, salad season. People have their gardens going. They have fresh lettuce and greens in the garden. Yeah. And if you want to have easy access and quick access to lettuce that's ready to go, you may want to wash it and dry it and cut it for you know, an almost instant side salad. But what you want to do after you've cut that lettuce to extend the life of it is before you put it away, you want to make sure that lettuce is bone dry. You want no liquid on it whatsoever. And what I usually do is... Salad spinner. Get a salad spinner. Yes. Continue. So yes, for, for starters, yes. Have a salad spinner. Make sure it's dry. Once you have established that it is completely dry, transfer it to a gallon Ziploc bag with dry paper towel. So what I do is make kind of, you know, the, you know what a meat diaper is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one you kind of just take. Um, I love to use the selecta size because you can make yes. the perfect size meat diaper. You know what I mean? Yes. But in so this maybe case, we should explain diaper. meat diaper. So a meat <laughs> diaper is that little absorbent packet that comes in the bottom of a package of meat that you buy at the store. So it's just there to soak up any of the liquid that the meat gives off while it's being stored on the store shelf. So we're we're kind of approximating that by folding up a couple of selectized paper towels and tucking them in the side of the lettuce or in the side of the bag with the lettuce. And then I close it most of the way and gently squeeze air out of the bag. You're not, again, you're not mistreating the lettuce here. Yeah, you're, you're not doing a vacuum seal. the air out. Yeah. And that will hold the, the cut lettuce in your fridge for probably up to a week. 
For sure. Sometimes you get, you know, depending on what where you live and how your refrigerator temperature regulation is and everything like that, sometimes you can get um, almost up to two weeks on, yeah. out of it, especially if you're dealing with a more durable lettuce like a romaine or something like that. The yeah, more so tender leaf lettuces don't tend to last as long. That's a fun tip anyway. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's it. I think we have told everybody what they've been doing wrong. Yes. All and how to time. fix it. And how to fix it. <laughs> Because we're good people. We've been telling you you've been wrong, but it's been with love. So <laughs> so I want to know if you all have any great tips for ways to make things more efficient in the kitchen, or if you think we're totally off base on our tips. Or if you found anything that we shared today informative, and maybe yes. you learned something new, and you're like, yes, this was awesome. Great life hack. And you want to share it with us, because we'd be happy to hear that we were right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to hear that. But thanks for hanging out with us today while we talked and told you everything that you're doing wrong. So, you know, <laughs> good sport for you. Yay. <laughs> totally teasing. I'm totally teasing. Okay. So like we mentioned, if you have any questions or you have any feedback or you want to share a story, you can send us your emails and your questions to full at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me, Mercedes, at thenoshery.com. And you can find me, Rebecca, at foodiewithfamily.com. And of course, you can find this episode along with every episode and their show notes at myplateisalwaysfull.com. Please like, share, listen, subscribe, review, download <laughs> every episode that you haven't listened to yet. And if you did listen to it, go ahead and download it again because you probably forgot some nice little tidbit of information. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, let's just be honest. So, but again, thanks for hanging out with us and tune in next Wednesday for another episode of My Plate is Always Full. Until next time, stay hungry, friends. Join us next week for another helping of My Plate is Always Full. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcasting platform, leave a review, and share it with your friends to spread the love.